Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 55 of Reading Cadence. I am your host of the Displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. This week, we get to dive in to the fourth part of the Marion Halcombe perspective. The year is 1850, six months after the marriage between Laura Fairley and Sir Percival Glyde. Marion Halcombe is just settling in to the Glyde estate. What will she discover? Let us begin. The Second Epoch. The story continued by Marion Halcombe. Blackwater Park, Hampshire. June 11th, 1850. Six months to look back on. Six long, lonely months since Laura and I last saw each other. How many days have I still to wait? Only one. Tomorrow, the 12th, the travellers return to England. I can hardly realise my own happiness. I can hardly believe that the next four and twenty hours will complete the last day of separation between Laura and me. She and her husband have been in Italy all the winter, and afterwards in the Tyrol. They come back accompanied by Count Fosco and his wife, who propose to settle somewhere in the neighbourhood of London, and who have engaged to stay at Blackwater Park for the summer months before deciding on a place of residence. So long as Laura returns, no matter who returns with her, Sir Percival may fill the house from floor to ceiling if he likes, on condition that his wife and I inhabit it together. Meanwhile, here I am, established at Blackwater Park, the ancient and interesting seat, as the country history obligingly informs me, of Sir Percival Glyde, baronet, and the future abiding place, as I may now venture to add on my account, of plain Marion Halcombe, spinster, now settled in a snug little sitting-room, with a cup of tea by her side, and all her earthly possessions ranged round her in three boxes and a bag. I left Limeridge yesterday, having received Laura's delightful letter from Paris the day before. I had been previously uncertain whether I was to meet them in London or in Hampshire, but this last letter informed me that Sir Percival proposed to land at Southampton and to travel straight on to his country house. He has spent so much money abroad that he has none left to defray the expenses of living in London for the remainder of the season, and he has economically resolved to pass the summer and autumn quietly at Blackwater. Laura has had more than enough of excitement and change of scene, and is pleased at the prospect of country tranquility and retirement which her husband's prudence provides for her. As for me, I am ready to be happy anywhere in her society. We are all, therefore, well contented in our various ways to begin with. Last night I slept in London, and was delayed there so long today by various calls and commissions that I did not reach Blackwater this evening till after dusk. Judging by my vague impressions of the place thus far, it is the exact opposite of Limeridge. The house is situated on a dead flat, and seems to be shut in, almost suffocated, to my North Country notions, by trees. I've seen nobody but the manservant who opened the door to me, and the housekeeper, a very civil person, who showed me the way to my own room and got me my tea. I have a nice little boudoir and bedroom at the end of a long passage on the first floor. 
The servants and some of the spare rooms are on the second floor, and all the living rooms are on the ground floor. I've not seen one of them yet, and I know nothing about the house, except that one wing of it is said to be five hundred years old, that it had a moat round it once, and that it got its name of Blackwater from a lake in the park. Eleven o'clock has just struck, in a ghostly and solemn manner, from a turret over the centre of the house, which I saw when I came in. A large dog has been woke, apparently by the sound of the bell, and is howling and yawning drearily somewhere round a corner. I hear echoing footsteps in the passages below, and the iron thumping of bolts and bars at the house door. The servants are evidently going to bed. Shall I follow their example? No, I am not half sleepy enough. Sleepy, did I say? I feel as if I should never close my eyes again. The bare anticipation of seeing that dear face and hearing that well-known voice tomorrow keeps me in a perpetual fever of excitement. If I only had privileges of a man, I would order out Sir Percival's best horse instantly and tear away on a night gallop eastward to meet the rising sun. A long, hard, heavy, ceaseless gallop of hours and hours, like the famous highwayman's ride to York. Being, however, nothing but a woman, condemned to patience, propriety, and petticoats for life, I must respect the housekeeper's opinions and try to compose myself in some feeble and feminine way. Reading is out of the question. I can't fix my attention on books. Let me try if I can write myself into sleepiness and fatigue. My journal has been very much neglected of late. What can I recall, standing as I now do on the threshold of a new life, of persons and events, of chances and changes during the past six months, the long, weary, empty interval since Laura's wedding day? Walter Hartwright is uppermost in my memory, and he passes first in the shadowy procession of my absent friends. I received a few lines from him after the landing of the expedition in Honduras, written more cheerfully and hopefully than he has written yet. A month or six weeks later, I saw an extract from an American newspaper describing the departure of the adventurers on their inland journey. They were last seen entering a wild primeval forest, each man with his rifle on his shoulder, and his baggage at his back. Since that time, civilization has lost all trace of them. Not a line more have I received from Walter. Not a fragment of news from the expedition has appeared in any of the public journals. The same dense, disheartening obscurity hangs over the fate and fortunes of Anne Catherick and her companion Mrs. Clements. Nothing whatever has been heard of either of them, whether they are in the country or out of it. Whether they are living or dead, no one knows. Even Sir Percival's solicitor has lost all hope, and has ordered the useless search, after the fugitives, to be finally given up. Our good old friend Mr. Gilmore has met with a sad check in his active professional career. Early in the spring we were alarmed by hearing that he had been found insensible at his desk, and that the seizure was pronounced to be an apoplectic fit. He had been long complaining of fullness and oppression in the head, and his doctor had warned him of the consequences that would follow his persistency in continuing to work, early and late as if he was still a young man. The result now is that he has been positively ordered to keep out of his office for a year to come, at least, and to seek repose of body and relief of mind by altogether changing his usual mode of life. 
The business is left, accordingly, to be carried on by his partner, and he is himself, at this moment, away in Germany, visiting some relations who are settled there in mercantile pursuits. Thus, another true friend and trustworthy adviser is lost to us, lost, as I earnestly hope and trust, for a time only. Poor Mrs. Vesey travelled with me as far as London. It was impossible to abandon her to solitude at Limeridge, after Laura and I had both left the house, and we have arranged that she is to live with an unmarried younger sister of hers, who keeps a school at Clapham. She is to come here this autumn to visit her pupil, I might almost say her adopted child. I saw the good old lady safe to her destination, and left her in the care of her relative quietly happy at the prospect of seeing Laura again in a few months' time. As for Mr. Fairley, I believe I am guilty of no injustice if I describe him as being unutterably relieved by having the house clear of us women. The idea of his missing his niece is simply preposterous. He used to let the months pass in the old times without attempting to see her. And in my case, and in Mrs. Vesey's, I take leave to consider his telling us both that he was half-heart-broken at our departure, to be equivalent to a confession that he was secretly rejoiced to get rid of us. His last caprice has led him to keep two photographers incessantly employed in producing sun pictures of all the treasures and curiosities in his possession. One complete copy of the collection of the photographs is to be presented to the Mechanics Institution of Carlisle, mounted on the finest cardboard, with ostentatious red-letter inscriptions underneath. Madonna and Child, by Raphael, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Copper Coin, of the period of Tiglath Pileser, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Unique Rembrandt etching, known all over Europe as the Smudge, from a printer's blot in the corner which exists in no other copy, valued at three hundred guineas, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Dozens of photographs of this sort, and all inscribed in this manner, were completed before I left Cumberland, and hundreds more remained to be done. With this new interest to occupy him, Mr. Fairley will be a happy man for months and months to come, and the two unfortunate photographers will share the social martyrdom which he has hitherto inflicted on his valet alone. So much for the persons and events which hold the foremost place in my memory. What next of the one person who holds the foremost place in my heart? Laura has been present to my thoughts all the while I've been writing these lines. What can I recall of her during the past six months before I close my journal for the night? I have only her letters to guide me, and on the most important of all questions which our correspondents can discuss, every one of those letters leaves me in the dark. Does he treat her kindly? Is she happier now than she was when I parted with her on her wedding day? All my letters have contained these two inquiries, put more or less directly, now in one form and now in another, and all on that point only, have remained without reply, or have been answered as if my questions merely related to the state of her health. She informs me over and over again that she is perfectly well, that travelling agrees with her, that she is getting through the winter for the first time in her life without catching cold. But not a word can I find anywhere 
which tells me plainly that she is reconciled to her marriage, and that she can now look back to the 22nd of December without any bitter feelings of repentance and regret. The name of her husband is only mentioned in her letters, as she might mention the name of a friend who is travelling with them, and who had undertaken to make all the arrangements for the journey. Sir Percival has settled that we leave on such a day. Sir Percival has decided that we travel by such a road. Sometimes she does write Percival only, but very seldom. In nine cases out of ten, she gives him his title. I cannot find that his habits and opinions have changed and coloured hers in any single particular. The usual moral transformation, which is insensibly wrought in a young, fresh, sensitive woman by her marriage, seems never to have taken place in Laura. She writes of her own thoughts and impressions amid all the wonders she has seen, exactly as she might have written to someone else as if I'd been travelling with her instead of her husband. I see no portrayal anywhere of sympathy of any kind existing between them, even when she wanders from the subject of her travels and occupies herself with the prospects that await her in England, her speculations are busied with her future as my sister, and persistently neglect to notice her future as Sir Percival's wife. In all this, there is no undertone of complaint to warn me that she is absolutely unhappy in her married life. The impression I have derived from our correspondence does not, thank God, lead me to any such distressing conclusion as that. I only see a sad torpor, an unchangeable indifference when I turn my mind from her in the old character of a sister and look at her through the medium of her letters in the new character of a wife. In other words, it is always Laura Fairley who has been writing to me for the last six months, and never Lady Glyde. The strange silence which she maintains on the subject of her husband's character and conduct she preserves with almost equal resolution in the few references which her later letters contain to the name of her husband's bosom friend, Count Fosco. For some unexplained reason, the Count and his wife appear to have changed their plans abruptly at the end of last autumn and have gone to Vienna instead of going to Rome, at which latter place Sir Percival had expected to find them when he left England. They only quitted Vienna in the spring, and travelled as far as the Tyrol to meet the bride and bridegroom on their homeward journey. Laura writes readily enough about the meeting with Madame Fosco, and assures me that she has found her aunt so much changed for the better, so much quieter and so much more sensible as a wife than she was as a single woman, that I shall hardly know her again when I see her here. But on the subject of Count Fosco, who interests me infinitely more than his wife, Laura is provokingly circumspect and silent. She only says that he puzzles her, and that she will not tell me what her impression of him is until I have seen him and formed my own opinion first. This, to my mind, looks ill for the Count. Laura has preserved far more eloquently than most people do in later life the child's subtle faculty of knowing a friend by instinct, and if I am right in assuming that her impression of Count Fosco has not been favourable, I, for one, am in some danger of doubting and distrusting that illustrious foreigner before I have so much as set eyes on him. But, patience, patience, this uncertainty, and many uncertainties more, cannot last much longer. Tomorrow will see all my doubts 
in a fair way of being cleared up sooner or later. Twelve o'clock has struck, and I've just come back to close these pages after looking out at my open window. It is a still, sultry, moonless night. The stars are dull and few. The trees that shut out the view on all sides look dimly black and solid in the distance, like a great wall of rock. I hear the croaking of frogs, faint and far off, and the echoes of the great clock hum in the airless calm long after the strokes have ceased. I wonder how Blackwater Park will look in the daytime. I don't altogether like it by night. June 12th. A day of investigations and discoveries. A more interesting day for many reasons than I had ventured to anticipate. I began my sightseeing, of course, with the house. The main body of the building is of the time of that highly overrated woman, Queen Elizabeth. On the ground floor there are two hugely long galleries, with low ceilings lying parallel with each other, and rendered additionally dark and dismal by hideous family portraits, every one of them which I should like to burn. The rooms on the floor above the two galleries are kept in tolerable repair, but are very seldom used. The civil housekeeper, who acted as my guide, offered to show me over them, but considerately added that she feared I should find them rather out of order. My respect for the integrity of my own petticoats and stockings infinitely exceeds my respect for all the Elizabethan bedrooms in the kingdom, so I positively declined exploring the upper regions of dust and dirt at the risk of soiling my nice clean clothes. The housekeeper said, I am quite of your opinion, miss, and appeared to think me the most sensible woman she had met with for a long time past. So much then for the main building. Two wings are added at either end of it. The half-ruined wing on the left, as you approach the house, was once a place of residence standing by itself and was built in the 14th century. One of Sir Percival's maternal ancestors, I don't remember and don't care which, tacked on the main building at right angles to it in the aforesaid Queen Elizabeth's time. The housekeeper told me that the architecture of the old wing, both outside and inside, was considered remarkably fine by good judges. On further investigation, I discovered that good judges could only exercise their abilities on Sir Percival's piece of antiquity by previously dismissing from their minds all fear of damp darkness and rats. Under these circumstances, I unhesitatingly acknowledged myself to be no judge at all, and suggested that we should treat the old wing precisely as we had previously treated the Elizabethan bedrooms. Once more, the housekeeper said, I'm quite of your opinion, miss. And once more, she looked at me with undisguised admiration of my extraordinary common sense. We went to the next wing on the right, which was built, by way of completing the wonderful architectural jumble at Blackwater Park, in the time of George II. This is the habitable part of the house, which has been repaired and redecorated inside on Lorder's account. My two rooms, and all the good bedrooms besides, are on the first floor, and the basement contains a drawing room, a dining room, a morning room, a library, and a pretty little boudoir for Laura all very nicely ornamented in the bright modern way, and all very elegantly furnished 
with the delightful modern luxuries. None of the rooms are anything like so large and airy as our rooms at Limeridge, but they all look pleasant to live in. I was terribly afraid, from what I had heard of Blackwater Park, of fatiguing antique chairs and dismal stained glass and musty, frowsy haggings, and all the barbarous lumber which people board without a sense of comfort accumulate about them, in defiance of the consideration due to the convenience of their friends. It is an inexpressible relief to find that the 19th century has invaded this strange future home of mine, and has swept the dirty good old times out of the way of our daily life. I dawdled away the morning, part of the time in the rooms downstairs, and part out of doors in the great square which is formed by the three sides of the house, and by the lofty iron railings and gates which protect it in the front. A large circular fish pond with stone sides and an allegorical leaden monster in the middle occupies the centre of the square. The pond itself is full of gold and silver fish, and is encircled by a broad belt of the softest turf I have ever walked on. I loitered here on the shady side pleasantly enough till luncheon time, and after that took my broad straw hat and wandered out alone in the warm lovely sunlight to explore the grounds. Daylight confirmed the impression which I had felt the night before, of there being too many trees at Blackwater. The house is stifled by them. They are, for the most part, young and planted far too thickly. I suspect there must have been a ruinous cutting down of timber all over the estate before Sir Percival's time, and an angry anxiety on the part of the next possessor to fill up all the gaps as thickly and as rapidly as possible. After looking about me in the front of the house, I observed a flower garden on my left hand and walked towards it to see what I could discover in that direction. On nearer view, the garden proved to be small and poor and ill-kept. I left it behind me, opened a little gate in the ring fence, and found myself in a plantation of fir trees. A pretty winding path, artificially made, led me on among the trees, and my North Country experience soon informed me that I was approaching sandy, heathy ground. After a walk of more than a half a mile, I should think, among the firs, the path took a sharp turn. The trees abruptly ceased to appear on either side of me, and I found myself standing suddenly on the margin of a vast open space and looking down at the Blackwater Lake from which the house takes its name. The ground, shelving away below me, was all sand, with a few little heathy hillocks to break the monotony of it in certain places. The lake itself had evidently once flowed to the spot on which I stood, and had been gradually wasted and dried up to less than a third of its former size. I saw its still stagnant waters, a quarter of a mile away from me, in the hollow, separated into pools and ponds by twining reeds and rushes and little knolls of earth. On the farther bank from me, the trees rose thickly again and shut out the view and cast their black shadows on the sluggish, shallow water. As I walked down to the lake, I saw that the ground on its farther side was damp and marshy, overgrown with rank grass and dismal willows. The water which was clear enough on the open sandy side, where the sun shone, looked black and poisonous opposite to me, 
where it lay deeper under the shade of the spongy banks and the rank overhanging thickets and tangled trees. The frogs were croaking, and the rats were slipping in and out of the shadowy water like live shadows themselves as I got nearer to the marshy side of the lake. I saw here, lying half in and half out of the water, the rotten wreck of an old overturned boat with a sickly spot of sunlight glimmering through a gap in the trees on its dry surface and a snake basking in the midst of the spot, fantastically coiled and treacherously still. Far and near the view suggested the same dreary impressions of solitude and decay, and the glorious brightness of the summer sky overhead seemed only to deepen and harden the gloom and barrenness of the wilderness on which it shone. I turned and retraced my steps to a high heathy ground, directing them a little aside from my former path towards a shabby old wooden shed which stood on the outer skirt of the fir plantation, and which had hitherto been too unimportant to share my notice with the wide wild prospect of the lake. On approaching the shed, I found that it had once been a boathouse, and that an attempt had apparently been made to convert it afterwards into a sort of rude arbor by placing inside it a furwood seat, a few stools, and a table. I entered the place and sat down for a little while to rest and get my breath again. I had not been in the boathouse more than a minute when it struck me that the sound of my own quick breathing was very strangely echoed by something beneath me. I listened intently for a moment and heard a low, thick, sobbing breath that seemed to come from the ground under the seat which I was occupying. My nerves are not easily shaken by trifles, but on this occasion I started on my feet in a fright, called out, received no answer, summoned back my recreant courage, and looked under the seat. There, crouched up in the farthest corner, lay the forlorn cause of my terror in the shape of a poor little dog, a black-and-white spaniel. The creature moaned feebly when I looked at it and called to it, but never stirred. I moved away the seat and looked closer. The poor little dog's eyes were glazing fast, and there were some spots of blood on its glossy white side. The misery of a weak, helpless, dumb creature is surely one of the saddest of all the mournful sights which this world can show. I lifted the poor dog in my arms as gently as I could, and contrived a sort of makeshift hammock for him to lie in, by gathering up the front of my dress all round him. In this way, I took the creature as painlessly as possible, and as fast as possible, back to the house. Finding no one in the hall, I went up at once to my own sitting room, made a bed for the dog with one of my old shawls, and rang the bell. The largest and fattest of all possible housemaids answered it, in a state of cheerful stupidity which would have provoked the patience of a saint. The girl's fat, shapeless face actually stretched into a broad grin at the sight of the wounded creature on the floor. What do you see there to laugh at? I asked as angrily as if she had been a servant of my own. Do you know whose dog it is? No, miss, that I certainly don't. She stooped and looked down at the spaniel's injured side, brightened suddenly with the irradiation of a new idea, and pointing to the wound with a chuckle of satisfaction said, 
That's Baxter's doings, that is. I was so exasperated that I could have boxed her ears. Baxter, I said. Who is the brute you call Baxter? The girl grinned again, more cheerfully than ever. Bless you, miss. Baxter's the keeper, and when he finds strange dogs hunting about, he takes and shoots them. It's keeper's duty, miss. I think that the dog will die. Here's where he's been shot, ain't it? That's Baxter's doing, that is. Baxter's doing, miss, and Baxter's duty. I was almost wicked enough to wish that Baxter had shot the housemaid instead of the dog. Seeing that it was quite useless to expect this densely impenetrable personage to give me any help in relieving the suffering creature at our feet, I told her to request the housekeeper's attendance with my compliments. She went out exactly as she had come in, grinning from ear to ear. As the door closed on her, she said to herself softly, It's Baxter's doing and Baxter's duty. That's what it is. The housekeeper, a person of some education and intelligence, thoughtfully brought upstairs with her some milk and some warm water. The instant she showed the dog on the floor, she started and changed colour. Why, Lord, bless me, cried the housekeeper. That must be Mrs. Catherick's dog. Whose? I asked in the utmost astonishment. Mrs. Catherick's. You seem to know Mrs. Catherick, Miss Halcombe. Not personally, but I have heard of her. Does she live here? Has she had any news of her daughter? No, Miss Halcombe. She came here to ask for news. When? Only yesterday. She said someone had reported that a stranger answering to the description of her daughter had been seen in our neighbourhood. No such report had reached us here, and no such report was known in the village when I sent to make inquiries there on Mrs. Catherick's account. She certainly brought this poor little creature with her when she came. I saw it trot out after her when she went away. I suppose the creature strayed into the plantations and got shot. Where did you find it, Miss Halcombe? In the old shed that looks out on the lake. Ah, yes, that is the plantation side, and the poor thing dragged itself, I suppose, to the nearest shelter, as dogs will, to die. If you can moisten its lips with milk, Miss Halcombe, I will wash the clotted hair from the wound. I'm very much afraid it is too late to do any good. However, we can but try. Mrs. Catherick. The name still rang in my ears, as if the housekeeper had only that moment surprised me by uttering it. While we were attending to the dog, the words of Walter Hartwright's caution to me returned to my memory. If Anne Catherick crosses your path, make better use of the opportunity, Miss Halcombe, than I made of it. The finding of the wounded spaniel had led me already to the discovery of Mrs. Catherick's visit to Blackwater, and that event might lead in its turn to something more. I determined to make the most of the chance which was now offered to me and to gain as much information as I could. "'Did you say that Mrs. Catherick lived anywhere in this neighbourhood?' I asked. "'Oh, dear, no,' said the housekeeper. "'She lives at Welmingham, quite at the other end of the county, five and twenty miles off at least.' "'I suppose you have known Mrs. Catherick for some years?' "'On the contrary, Miss Halcombe. I never saw her before she came here yesterday.' I had heard of her, of course, because I had heard of Sir Percival's kindness in putting her daughter under medical care. Mrs. Catherick is rather a strange person in her manners, but extremely respectable-looking. 
She seemed sorely put out when she found out that there was no foundation, none at least that any of us could discover, for the report of her daughter having been seen in this neighbourhood. I am rather interested about Mrs. Catherick, I went on, continuing the conversation as long as possible. I wish I had arrived here soon enough to see her yesterday. Did she stay for any length of time? Yes, said the housekeeper. She stayed for some time. I think she would have remained longer if I had not been called away to speak to a strange gentleman, a gentleman who came to ask when Sir Percival was expected back. Mrs. Catherick got up and left at once when she heard the maid tell me what the visitor's errand was. She said to me at parting that there was no need to tell Sir Percival of her coming here. I thought that rather an odd remark to make, especially to a person in my responsible situation. I thought it an odd remark, too. Sir Percival had certainly led me to believe, at Limeridge, that the most perfect confidence existed between himself and Mrs. Catherick. If that was the case, why should she be anxious to have her visit at Blackwater Park kept a secret from him? Probably, I said, seeing that the housekeeper expected me to give my opinion on Mrs. Catherick's parting words. Probably she thought the announcement of a visit might vex Sir Percival to no purpose by reminding him that her lost daughter was not found yet. Did she talk much on that subject? Very little, replied the housekeeper. She talked principally of Sir Percival, and asked a great many questions about where he had been travelling and what sort of lady his new wife was. She seemed to be more soured and put out than distressed by failing to find any traces of her daughter in these parts. I give her up, were the last words she said that I can remember. I give her up, ma'am, for lost. And from that, she passed at once to her questions about Lady Glyde, wanting to know if she was a handsome, amiable lady, comely and healthy and young. Oh, dear, I thought how it would end. Look, Miss Halcombe, the poor thing is out of its misery at last. The dog was dead. It had given a faint, sobbing cry. It had suffered an instant's convulsion of the limbs, just as those words, comely and healthy and young, dropped from the housekeeper's lips. The change had happened with startling suddenness. In one moment, the creature lay lifeless under our hands. Eight o'clock. I've just returned from dining downstairs in solitary state. The sunset is burning redly on the wilderness of trees that I see from my window, and I am poring over my journal again to call my impatience for the return of the travellers. They ought to have arrived by my calculations before this. How still and lonely the house is in the drowsy evening quiet. Oh me, how many more minutes before I hear the carriage wheels and run downstairs to find myself in Laura's arms. The poor little dog. I wish my first day at Blackwater Park had not been associated with death, though it is only the death of a stray animal. Welmingham. I see on looking back through these private pages of mine that Welmingham is the name of the place where Mrs. Catherick lives. Her note is still in my possession, the note in answer to that letter about her unhappy daughter, which Sir Percival obliged me to write. One of these days, when I can find a safe opportunity, I will take the note with me by way of introduction and try what I can make of Mrs. Catherick at a personal interview. I don't understand her wishing to conceal her visit to this place from Sir Percival's knowledge, 
and I don't feel half so sure, as the housekeeper seems to do, that her daughter Anne is not in the neighbourhood after all. What would Walter Hartwright have said in this emergency? Poor dear Hartwright. I'm beginning to feel the warmth of his honest advice and his willing help already. Surely I heard something. Was it a bustle of footsteps below stairs? Yes, I hear the horse's feet. I hear the rolling wheels. End of part four of The Halcombe Perspective. So like I always say, you can tell a lot about a person by the way that they take care of their teeth. But also in Sir Percival's situation, you can tell a lot about him by the way that he takes care of his property. There was a lot of really enlightening stuff that happened in what some would argue to be a more boring portion of this book. Marion Halcombe includes this to set up the stage of the environment, okay? Environment is everything, and it's going to set the tone, I believe, for this next section that we're going to be reading. This house, I don't know if you caught it. I thought it was historically cool, but when you think about the implications, disturbing, is split up into three different eras. The Elizabethan era, the George II era, Georgian, I guess, and then the Victorian era. Okay, the first wing, Elizabethan era, Elizabeth I, because remember this is 1850, reigned from 1558 to 1603. So that wing is about 250 years old. Then moving on to the middle section that was built later on, you've got the Georgian time period style of architecture. He reigned from 1727 to 1760. So again, eclectic, but you've got that portion in time. And then you go into the third wing that was built on um, now. I don't... I guess it wasn't really technically Victorian per se, but we're living in the Victorian era and Marion makes a point to say that it's been updated. So for the sake of this, it's Victorian style, right? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, right? Because Queen Victoria is living, she reigned from 1837 to 1901. So she's got a few more years left. I think she reigned for like 63 years. So they've got some time. So you've got this situation, okay? There are a few implications behind why he probably hasn't updated his house inter internally. And by the way, it's so dirty, his housekeeper even acknowledges it. And she doesn't even want to step foot in the property. His own housekeeper. Like, what does that tell you about this place? And so I think it implies two things. One, the dude has no money to upgrade his existing portions. So why he paid all that money to upgrade one portion of the house? Beyond me. But I guess you gotta do something when you get married. God, this dude has no money. So he's banking heavily on Laura's fortune and inheritance to carry him along for his estate. Second, it also, I would say, indicates, based off how dirty those other wings are, that he doesn't have a lot of people over at his house. Not a lot of guests. Because if you invite people over for parties at your house, the one of the first things that you're going to make sure so that people don't gossip about your house, because they don't, they don't have texting or instant communication, which is a very tremendous blessing in this time period, but it also hurts them 
because you don't get an update on how the place looks until your next visit. And if they go to visit the house and it's in immense disrepair, that's all they're going to be talking about until he invites them over for another party when it looks nicer. So probably doesn't want anybody to see his house. And then it also is supported by the fact that he has a tremendous lack of staff. Okay? She describes it complete, almost complete opposite of Limbridge in a lot of ways. And one of the ways she noted was the staff was so meagerly dispersed. They're running lean here. Um, also an indication he probably doesn't invite a lot of people over. A lot of red flags there because a really well, you know, socially rounded person would probably have people over, especially based on what people are quote unquote saying about him as character references, how he's very well liked and everything. And so the fact that he doesn't invite people over to his own estate uh, doesn't have his house in order. That's a red flag there. But let's continue on with the staff because I think this is very, very even more important. Okay. Later on, we're no it's noted that the property manager kills dogs for fun. Okay. Stray animals doesn't like them, so shoots them. So you've got a dog killer running your property. By indication of leadership right, Sir Percival, let's call him SPG for short, is a dog killer. Now you may say to yourself, well, he's not actually the one pulling the trigger. Well, let's think about this. Let's break this down, okay? Because you got this property manager who's running wild and going around shooting stray animals, dogs, which we find out he knew that this dog was related to Mrs. Catherick in some way. So also a red flag there. Like, inefficient. Clearly, the staff at least knew about this because we find out that the maid was like, oh, <laughs> he probably got shot by Baxter. Baxter's a dog's name, so if anything, if my name was Baxter, I'd be more empathetic to dogs. But that's beside the point. So this maid, sadistic as she is, is okay with a dog killer living under the same roof as her. And then you're like, well, maybe the staff didn't feel comfortable saying anything to Sir Percival. Whoa, huger red flag. The master of any estate should be aware of all of their personnel should be able to trust them with his life and they should be um, really valuable workers for him. So the fact that he is careless about his staff doesn't take time to understand that these people are dog killers. I would say ignorance is no excuse. He should be proactively getting to know the people that are he's uh, not reigning over. That, that he's employed in his, like, that's just employment 101, okay? So, shame on him for not doing that. And if he does know, then shame on him because he's just allowed all this to happen. So, triple shame. And that is just one facet of this entire thing. That's just the interior of the house. I haven't even got to talking about the exterior. You know, from an ill-kept garden to... Trees growing out of the middle of nowhere. Um, you've got this crown jewel of the property, the Blackwater Lake, 
is receded by a third by Marion Halcombe's estimation, which I trust it. And then you've got shrubbed hills. They call, she calls them heathy hillocks, but shrubby hills, not very well taken care of. You got a creepy fountain in the courtyard that, you know, shooting water out its mouth. Not necessarily an indication, but it's got goldfish and silverfish in it, which sounds like a red flag in my book. Anyway, you go down to the lake. There's a shed down there that they've tried to turn into an arboretum or I would guess like a greenhouse type of situation, gazebo maybe. And seems like a nice part of the property. Okay, they're working on it. Bam, dead dog. Instantly a turnoff. Like, 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 come on guys. Like, you can't do one thing right. You're like, oh, that's cool. They converted a shed into an arboretum. Dead dog. Blood everywhere. And so that brings us back to the whole, you know, argument here. And then, of course, we're learning now that Sir Percival is going to be bringing the Foscos into town with Laura. Those guys were mysteriously out of the picture the entire honeymoon until the very end. So don't know what was going on with them. Maybe they have a really good reason. I don't know. But we also find out that Anne Catherick is not far behind. So, shoot. There's a lot that happened here. Poor little dog. Whelming him where Mrs. Catherick lives isn't that far away. And so, who the heck knows? And the friendliest part of all of this storyline was that Mrs. VC is living with her younger sister. Like, that was, like, literally the only positive thing that I could draw out of this passage. And Marion, you know, finally pulls something positive there that I can just, like, latch on to. I'm glad Mrs. VC is getting taken care of because SPG's property is not. So, yikes. Walter Hart writes out fighting for his life in the jungle at this point. Not a very developed area, or at least not very well-known area. And so, you got that going for him. Mr. Gilmore had a heart attack or a seizure or whatever. Frederick Fairley is off, you know, appraising his own artwork and probably charging absorbent prices for a smudge on a portrait it's like, oh, that's unique. 300 guineas. Woohoo. You know? Golly. I, the whole place is crazy. I, I mean, might as well walk into Wonderland. Pretty sure that's not under copyright because we just read that book. Because everything's just insane. I wouldn't be surprised if Mad Hatter pops out at this point. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in show business, that's all she wrote for now. <laughs>